0: Hello and welcome to Pedagodzilla, where we answer incredibly silly questions by pulling apart pieces of pedagogic theory, research and observation, and good old lovely geeky pop culture. Uh, This episode we'll be answering the question, how does critical digital pedagogy help Starfleet boldly go where no one has gone before? So answering the question today is me, I'm Mike, I'm a learning designer and a bloke with a microphone and joining me today we have...
1: Uh, My name is Liz, I work in a learning innovation team. I'm uh, slightly interested in um, critical digital pedagogy and very interested in Star Trek.
0: And we both work for the Open University. And as always, our views are entirely our own. So please don't sack us. Um, Especially because this is still tagged as explicit on iTunes. Because I never catch all of the naughty words. (laughs) Part one, the question. Okay, so let's start by breaking down our question. How does critical digital pedagogy help Starfleet boldly go where no one has gone before? There are two components to that. That is critical digital pedagogy and Starfleet. So we should probably start with the fun bit. Which is who the hell are Starfleet?
1: <laughs> <laughs> so this is the part where where we start to get into an actual fist fight as to what is the best Star Trek uh, Star Trek series, but Starfleet is the um, quasi-military slash exploratory wing of the United Federation of Planets um, yes. from Gene Roddenberry's Star Trek series. And, uh, and they boldly go in their starships trying to de- defend um, the, the, the various quadrants, but also slightly a little bit on the colonial side going out, bit, spreading yeah. their ideology. Spreading their technology, but they've got the prime directive there to try and keep them just on the right side of the line.
0: (laughs) Yeah, it's it's like there's there's ever so slightly sinister elements on it. Um, Ignore the films, ignore ignore the recent films anyway.
1: Except for First Contact, which is one of the greatest uh, sci-fi films ever made. I said recent. <laughs> oh, my God. I can't believe that First Contact isn't recent. That makes me really old. I
0: think that must be at least 15 years old now.
1: Oh, that's long. I was 20? High, more than 20, because I was in high school. So this is going to be how old I am. Oh, my God. I is First, First Contact
0: S- the one with Vija?
1: No, no. First Contact is the one. No, God, not even I'm that old. First Contact <laughs> is the one with the old Queen.
0: That's the one I'm thinking of.
1: Yes, that was made in the, ni- in the late 90s.
0: Holy smokes. That is a great film.
1: That is. She, Alice Krieger went to my university and she was um, one of the speakers at my graduation. She was amazing. Oh but she wasn't bald. I was really disappointed.
0: <laughs> <laughs> or just a spine. Yes, um, absolutely. Oh man, that was a great film. Uh, but what is your definitive Star Trek series.
1: Uh, it's going to be Voyager.
0: Oh, I, me too. Abs-
1: I know. I, uh, I'm so glad. To, I'm so glad to hear that because I thought we might have to. In, like I said yeah, in just just the recording <laughs> I right there. no I I just I just remember being 13 and um, getting into Star Trek and the first series that I ever actually really I remember being little and watching a little bit of little bit of um of uh, next generation mm. and Geordie LaForge with his Alice band over his eyes oh, so cool. um but but really Voyager is when I really got into Star Trek mm. and uh, I just just I was completely completely enthralled by by the whole thing that's tell you what for 13 year old me knew that I was sitting here talking about bloody pedagogy and Star Trek, I would just be in bits on the
0: floor. It's <laughs> <laughs> such a good series, that whole lost in space thing, the uncertain number of photon torpedoes. Uh, they fire all of their photon torpedoes halfway through the series and then continue to fire ones they <laughs> don't have. Magically,
1: yes, yeah. And the whole idea that you have to go, that, that um, Catherine Jadeway is so... Decaffeinated, she will take an entire ship into a monster in space <laughs> in order to get some caffeine. <laughs> you know, there's coffee in that nebula, is one yes. of the greatest lines ever written. <laughs> oh, but yeah, good. no, but no, but it's, I mean, that is, I mean, that's, that's a, I think, I think the reason I, I love Voyager is is that it's, it's such a, I, I feel like it summarizes so much of what makes Star Trek both great, but also incredibly problematic. um Just the whole approach that they're taking. They're, they're they are, They land there by accident. Um, They have to make a a kind of a moral decision, political decision, whichever way you want to look at it, that leaves them then stranded there. And then they have to spend the next seven years trying to work their way through it. And I feel like they get challenged sort of in who they are and what they sort of you know kind of their ideology is what mm. their thought what their values are far more than any of the other star trek absolutely series. i
0: mean the prime director is a great example there because um it's something that we, we've spoken about earlier and we may well allude to later on uh, in the episode but their just being in the sector leaves this massive massive impact this massive distorting impact because suddenly they are the big technology advanced technologically advanced player in the sector and even though they don't want to, that causes uh, all manner of uh, all manner yeah. of MacGuffin.
1: Well, I mean, but the fact is, I mean, the Prime Directive as well is is uh, I mean, Janeway uses it like a skipping rope. I've seen some reviewers, <laughs> some reviewers say, but I mean, their whole the whole I the whole fact of Voyager being. Being um, wrecked in the Delta Quadrant is because of a Prime Directive decision. Mm. So they basically make a as uh, says at the end of the first, at the end of Caretaker, you know that the Prime Directive would seem to apply. They should use the Caretaker's technology to send themselves home, leave the Akamar to fend for themselves. And Janeway is sort of like, no, you know we've involved ourselves in this. In this now, um, we might not want to be involved, but we are. So the Prime Directive doesn't apply. And then. That's the single. I, I mean, funnily enough, you know, kind of I've gone back and rewatched that episode mm. of more than once off Kelly. But I always it, it, it kind of it becomes the older you get, I think, the more important that decision is that she makes. But also, I mean, she is essentially wrecking, you know, two ships of people for 70 years and saying, no, my values are more important than than getting everybody. This, this or this is the value that is the most important, which is quite a quite a. Strong statement mm. to be to start, and i don't think she always gets challenged enough on that, um although she has to defend it quite a lot, mm. but yes, you're quite right. I mean just the fact of just the fact of them them being there they have the technology they could wield it for good or they could wield it for evil and to be honest, if you think about Captain um've oh, forgotten the name of it now, the episodes. The other Star Trek ship that they, they the oh, Starfleet ship that they discovered. Yes, discover, yes,
0: the one that's been. Um, yes. Use,
1: using, who are using their technology not for good and are using it, using their creatures to fill, to fuel themselves. Um, this would make this would be a much better point if I could remember the Ah, it's fine. I can
0: always.
1: Basically, so you've got. I mean, they are using technology for good, but partly that is because you, you've got them all kind of going. No, we are going to be a Starfleet vessel. These are the values that we're going to put above. Uh, Any other value, we're not going to use our technology to our to our advantage, and when they slip up on that, it usually ends up in a really bad explosion, and Mm. all all bets are off. So,
0: and there's also an episode where everybody turns into a lizard, (laughs) fucks everybody else. um, We don't talk about that episode. (laughs) Leave their bastard offspring on the planet.
1: which is where you do kind of think, yeah, no, because that's not going to come back to bite
0: you in the arse at any time. Yeah, that feels like a writer's strike episode. I don't know why.
1: I, oh, that's <laughs> Threshold, and it is possibly the weirdest and creepiest episode I've ever seen. Although, thankfully, the South African authorities um, uh, censored it, so I never actually had to see Paris and Janeway in lizard form fornicating.
0: I don't think I saw it either. I think I watched it on Netflix. and <laughs> I, I think I looked down at one stage, and then I looked up, and it was like, wait that. Yeah, it was, yeah. Anyway, moving on. Uh, okay, so that is what is Starfleet, i.e. Starfleet yeah. are this quasi-military, cultural, exploratory uh, arm of uh, the human and allied planets race called the United Federation of Planets within Star Trek, uh, seen in the TV series Star Trek, Star Trek Next Generation, Star Trek Voyager, Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and to some extent, Star Trek The New One on Netflix some of the films, but and none. Enterprise, and Enterprise, yeah, Enterprise is alright, I suppose. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. The, we are
1: going to fall out at the, some point. The new
0: films just didn't land with me. They've really poisoned the franchise for me, and I'm not sure I like the new one on Netflix either. Anyway, so we've exhaustively um, covered what uh, Star Trek is. Yeah. Um, we should probably also talk about the other component to our question, okay. which is critical digital pedagogy. So...
1: I tell you what, doesn't matter how many times you say critical digital pedagogy, it doesn't trip off the tongue any easier.
0: No. Um, can we come up with an acronym? No. Could have put...
1: No, we're just going to have to <laughs> suck it up.
0: <laughs> okay, so um, I'm going to give Liz a challenge. Okay, Liz, can you tell me in one sentence what is critical digital pedagogy
1: i can't because you can't i can't explain what critical digital pedagogy is without first talking about what critical pedagogy is (laughs) so i think i think i think you have to do that um so i'm going to and i'm also seriously going to make like some do some caveats here which is that this is something that interests me and i've tried to do as much reading on as possible but sort of for what are what we're chatting about today i have read a lot around kind of um Jesse Strommel and, um, uh, Pete, uh, Pete have talked about on the hybrid pedagogy in the hybrid pedagogy journal. So that's just, I'm just caveating, caveating that, but, but just generally speaking, um, sort of critical pedagogy, um, is essentially about understanding that pedagogy and, uh, learning, um, the process of education. Um, these are all things that come with power, power and power dynamics included. Um, as most of our life does. And critical pedagogy, kind of, from my understanding of it, sort of concerns itself with the equitable distribution of that power um, and um, ensuring, sort of trying to understand that in order to, um, in order to right some of the wrongs, you have to kind of acknowledge where the power is and how you distribute that power um, more, more equally and what, um, what education can both do about that but also the role education has to play in creating those kind of power dynamics.
0: Yeah. So, sort of, with great pedagogy comes great, great responsibility.
1: Yes. <laughs> to mix our to mix our uh, our <laughs> pop culture references. Yes. Um, critical digital pedagogy um, becomes really important because of where we are in time and space, essentially. Because we Which are, is also mixing our metaphors. Absolutely. Um, because here we are sort of, you know, coming almost probably out of the third industrial age and into the fourth industrial age. And we have people who are, we are both permeating, being permeated by technology. Um, we are learning to work in technology. We are teaching with technology and, and all of these things. And the power becomes those who have the technology and can use it. And then the have-nots who have no access and can't use it, but they are being increasingly asked to, for instance, work and live in a digital society. And so we have a responsibility to ensure that everybody has equal mm-hmm. access. So the power becomes, the, the, the power distribu- to, to my mind, the power distribution then becomes about equal access, opening, um, opening that up. But also who owns the technology? How are they wielding it? What are they doing with it? And again, coming back to, is it a force for good or is it a force for evil? Yeah, I mean,
0: unlike a lot of the bits of um, sort of pedagogic theory and research we've looked at um, in this podcast so far, it's interesting to note that critical pedagogy or critical digital pedagogy is more a manifesto at this stage than it is a piece of theory. And there's a definite framework and some definite points to look out for in it. But it's a, I'd say... Uh, it's quite aspirational in, in a lot of ways. It's a, it's a way things could be or a, a, an approach that we could take. But I think it starts by looking at what we're not doing quite right. or It starts by taking, well, ironically, a very critical eye at current practice as its, uh, as its kickoff point.
1: Which I think is, I mean, I think, to be honest, I think any, any pedagogic theory worth its salt is going to always hold a mirror, mirror up to itself mm. and go, you know, who are you and what are you trying to do? And understanding that none of us comes to anything, anything without some inherent set of values, an inherent set of um, beliefs, and, uh, you know, that we are uh, privileged or we come with a set of privileges or, or we have, are coming from a, a past that where you might have been excluded. Just that, just the act of knowing that um, and then really importantly, um, the act of then educating yourself about that, uh, trying to work through it. I think all um, um, pedagogies must have some, 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 some aspect of that.
0: Within this, there's a couple of approaches and definitions. that. So Jesse Stommel is, as you said, one of the key people in this, but he's also, uh, I'd say, one of the most vocal proponents. Uh, to say the least, um, I heartily encourage you to check out some of his YouTube videos, which are, um, I don't know, I mean, he comes across, I don't even know how to describe him, just like uh, a madman on a soapbox, like the guy in the street with the end is nigh around his neck. <laughs>
1: um, yeah, I, 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 um, I've only, last, um, sort of last year at the, at the university, we did a version of um, he and Sean Michael Morris's um, critical digital pedagogy lab, which was incredible, which is basically a, a sort of two or three days just spent... Um, working through the concepts and things like that. And I did. I found it just galvanising. It was really, really brilliant, really brilliant stuff. So, yeah, I, I mean, there is a lot of work in the space um, and they have a very interesting, uh, he and um, Jesse and I uh, Michael Morris have a really interesting take on it. And like I said, um, Pete, I really enjoy Pete's writing on it as well. Um, so, um, I mean, I think this is a really good, it's a really great um, intro to it if you've not come to it before.
0: Okay, so when we're talking about uh, critical digital pedagogy, um, so Mr. Jesse Stommel reckons that you should start by defining what you actually mean by critical. Because when he says critical, he means critical, underlined, uh, bold, and in, in italics, because it's this guy's got a lot going on with it, Finn. Yeah. Uh, so he says critical is mission critical, so it's essential. Critical, as in literary criticism and critique, so you know making sure you're defining and interpreting things. Uh, critical, as in reflection, so a kind of self reflection and um, thinking about and around a subject. Uh, critical, in the most classic sense, criticizing uh, institutional, corporate, or societal kind of barriers. Critical, as in critical pedagogy, as in a disciplinary approach, uh, which in turn uh, affects all of the other meanings of critical because you're doing it all through uh, a pedagogic lens. Uh, so there's a lot going on within critical. There, I don't know if there's anything that you feel that we should add to that.
1: I mean, I think I mean I think that that sort of in terms of that definition of the word,
0: it is like be critical in all aspects. I think I guess is the uh, the thing. It's be critical yes. in all aspects of your approach. I mean, it's it's very quite universal as well because it's when looking at, when doing, when.
1: It, it it is. I mean, so I mean, I'm always reminded of Carl Sagan's "Demon Haunted World." Um, you know, where he talks about one of the one of the first things he talks about um, at the beginning of that in the beginning of the book, which I highly recommend if people haven't had a chance to to read it. You know, he talks he talks a lot about kind of that you can't take things as read. You know, even even within science, it is the scientific approach is one of constant questioning, mm-hmm. and you know that empirical method and all the rest of it. But really, constant questioning. And then looking at the looking at what the new what new evidence there is, and then bringing that back into your work, and then f- carrying on forward, um, and things like that. You know, so I think that's definitely the part of the the word critical that I mm. that I gravitate towards.
0: And, and in a higher education setting, I mean, this applies not just to educators but also students. You know, as an educator, it says absolutely it question and challenge yourself on absolutely all aspects of what you're doing with regards to the education. As a student, it says just because a person's written it doesn't necessarily mean it's true. Challenge your own assumptions going in. Challenge your own work. It's, it's, it's a... It's a it's com-
1: ter- it's, the thing is, is with that, though, is, is that it is both incredibly exciting and also completely and utterly terrifying because you have to have... And this is possibly the, the part... I mean, I think it, it is... And this is in a world where um, you can't... Where we're being told, you know, sort of we're in a post-truth world and we don't trust experts mm. and all the rest of it. Without critical thinking... You can challenge all you like, but without critical thinking,
0: Boris Johnson gets into become PM. Yeah,
1: pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> oh god. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but 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 yes. Yeah, so so that's the thing is that, and that I think is the important thing about about that kind of being in a, being in a place of constant questioning is you have to be able to evaluate what's coming back. Mm. You have to be able to kind of go, okay, right, this is clearly bullshit um this is quasi bullshit but it's got some interesting points Mm -hmm. and and i think that's the thing is is their part where and i think the responsibility as an educator comes in where you are kind of you both you're both having to try and help people to learn to challenge things but also help them do that in a way that they're going to be able to make good clear decisions and make and make progress in Mm -hmm. there make progress as as they go
0: absolutely because it would be very easy to tie yourself in knots the whole Problem, like I say, one of the potential uh, stumbling blocks to the whole critical approach is that you spend so long being critical about everything that you find yourself unable to trust your shoelaces and you can't <laughs> leave the house.
1: This is why I don't wear lace shoes anymore. I can't do it.
0: <laughs> Only Velcro can be trusted. So Jesse, in some of his uh, articles, uh, just talks about a, a couple of a couple of points for how yeah. to approach this as as a general. General methodology. General methodology. It's not really general methodology.
1: So I don't know. Yeah, I don't know if he would call it a methodology. We no. could go with. Uh, we could go with the more generalised approach.
0: Yeah, it's going to be generalised. So, it talks about an approach to approaching it with an approach. So, his points are that it should centre its practice on community and collaboration. Yeah. It must remain open to diverse international voices, and thus requires invention to reimagine the ways that communication and collaboration happen across cultural and political boundaries. It will not and cannot, and by the way, this is how I said it sounded like a manifesto earlier. This is where it gets very manifesto Be defined by a single voice, but must gather together a cacophony of voices and must have use and application outside of traditional institutions of education. Um, I think for me, the real takeaway there is the not being defined by a single voice because that does seem, I think, to be the way, so that's the way you push forward. That's the way you actually still manage to make progress outside of the um, kind of the hypocritical so, oh, approach.
1: Yeah. yeah. So I think one of the toughest one of the toughest things is they who shout loudest are the ones who get to get to set the agenda, mm. and I think just even going actually that's not true, and, that, it's, and that's so not necessarily that, how think,
0: you get the best results either. No,
1: abso- uh, ab- ab- absolutely. But then again, you can't get anywhere without the cacophony of voices. So, mm. um, but trying to deal with that sometimes is very it's very
0: challenging. The ones which work for more people, the approaches which work for more people, tend to be the cacophony of voices. Unfortunately, he who shouts loudest wins tends to be the quickest way to get something done. Cacophony of voices tends to get it done right, eventually.
1: Even right is quite, sort of like, right is quite a big thing. Partially right is uh, sometimes going to be, is good enough.
0: Well, it becomes a compromise, whether or not it's a compromise by its nature. Offends people a, a kind of a, a tolerable amount. Yes, yeah. Whereas uh, with a one person shouts, you get a very polar pleased yeah. or not pleased. Absolutely. <laughs> um, anyway, sorry. No, no, no that's I think we, fine. we'd sum that bit up uh, no, beautifully fine. up to that point. Okay, so finally, when talking about critical digital pedagogy, we've got to talk about the digital elements. We've talked about the critical, and we talked about the kind of the uh, the manifesto, the approach. Let's talk about the digital aspect of it. So, there's a couple of points. They are. That uh, technology exists, therefore we have to exist with it. It changes things, but we don't know how. And tech for education doesn't always come from education. So let's dive into these a little bit. So technology exists, therefore we have to exist with it.
1: So this is kind of so earlier I was sort of saying about um, that I found that this is really interesting thing about critical digital pedagogy um, is the idea that, uh, I mean, I think sort of accepted thinking is that we're coming out of the third industrial revolution and into the fourth. And that it's not just about, that the fact that we are living with a technology and that you're able to ask a speaker in your, you know, to tell you the weather in your kitchen to tell you the weather or to set a timer. Um, it's not just about the consumer technology. It's not just about any of these things, but also that is changing the nature of work and also changing the nature of education and basically changing the, way, changing the culture that we're in. And so um, I think that's kind of, where was I, go? where was I going with that? So um, I, think, I think you'd got there. Yeah, I think I did as well.
0: I think it's changing the culture in which we're in. Yeah. Full stop. Next well, new paragraph. one
1: of the cultures we're in. Is, obviously, I'm talking about my own, my own culture here as an immigrant white mid-thirties
0: woman. If we get into liminality, <laughs> without Mark Childs in the room, he will beat me up. Okay. He'll, yeah. he'll beat me up if he knew. I mean, he already knows I'm cheating on him uh, with you today. <laughs> okay, so it's changing things, but we don't know how.
1: And I, so uh, yes, I think it is changing things. I think. I think some of it we're aware of. I think some of it happens to us without us even realising it, or we realise it quite late on in the process. Um, And I think it's about that kind of that vigilance, about understanding. Sort of, it's um, some of it is um, in training. You can kind of see the writing on the wall, but there are also things that we just we can't we can't predict. And I think this is the part where you have to kind of get. Get, have your baloney detector out and mm. your tricorder out and going, you know, what is going
0: on? What is going on? What is going on? Exactly. I mean, practical examples would be things like Netflix. Netflix has been around for about 10 years, and probably possibly slightly longer. I mean, but Netflix as a major streaming platform, um, nobody could have guessed when they first kicked off that they were very subtly but massively changing people's expectations of how content should be delivered, not just video and not just films and TV, but all content. Uh, and I think that's something that we're still seeing today is this big shift towards an on-demand pick-up-and-put-down streaming Yes, yeah. uh, kind of a method of consumption for, for lots of things. I mean, there's uh, echoes now in video games as well. Um, you, I think we're starting to see it in um, education, or at least we're starting to become more aware of it in education.
1: I guess for me, I think it's got to be both an acknowledgement. This is a thing that is changing us, has already changed us, and will continue to change us. And I guess it is both that that's not completely a terrible thing Mm. you know because actually a technology is an incredible force for good um all about the force for good and force for evil technology is an incredible thing i mean it's an amazing thing but it is about it is about what you do with it and how you wield it and also part of that is the fact that you know technology doesn't doesn't come delivered to us
0: completely Neutral. Yeah, it it doesn't come. It comes comes with baggage.
1: It all comes. It all comes with baggage.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, back to educational context. uh, The Open Universities switch from a primarily print-driven educational model to an online one. The assumption going in with how that would change, uh, in some regards, was that oh, it's fine. We can do away with books. Um, This is now a Cheaper, haha, uh, more efficient method of delivering this content, whereas in fact that is not necessarily the case at all. It is changing how people approach learning and what their expectations are of it, but not in the ways that people originally anticipated.
1: Yeah, but I, and I think that is, I think that's really interesting because I don't think you can look at the technology. You, I don't think you can ever look at technology purely, purely just as a a, a thing what is out there. Um, you have to always see it as well from the point of the the person who is using it. So the interesting thing for me about uh, blended learning um, and you, know, you being one example of blended learning is that of course, it doesn't just change it doesn't just change the student experience, it also changes the teaching experience. So you're all having immediately having a different a different experience. And therefore, you are all then becoming different people.
0: And finally, tech for education doesn't always come from education.
1: Well, this is, I think, a kind of, I think it's links into what we were just talking about, which is that, you know, kind of, um, especially, especially, I think, in a world of startups and lots of ideas booming, booming along. Um, the visual that immediately jumps to mind for me is a couple of years ago, I went to Educause, which is one of the big um, uh, educational technology uh, conferences in the US and if you've never been to a US based uh, education conference they are they are next level Lovely. they are enormous and they it's like being in an airplane hangar full of stuff i mean i've never seen it i've never experienced anything like it i mean they're brilliant but it is just i mean it's like it's like every conference that you've ever been to in the uk on acid and but the thing that i thought was really interesting was that they had loads of loads of vendors which is fine obviously you get loads of vendors uh, um it's not fine but vendors vendors oh vendors vendors people who hawk their technology at you um and just fine fine we see loads of them at conferences here as well but um there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. The thing I found really interesting about this particular education course is they had something called a vendor alley, which was basically startups, new little tiny companies who are starting up with an idea. And they want to hawk the idea at education, because it's seen that this is an area that needs technology, it needs to grow, you know, kind of, and they've got money, or they'll invest in it. And if you get into one institution, you'll get into another <laughs> institution, you'll get another institution, and it's not coming from the perspective of the pedagogy first. Mm. It's coming from the perspective of "oh, I have a thing, I'm going to make it into something, and then I'll sell it to an angel investor, and then I'll be, and then I'll have be quids in or dollars in, and uh, and I'll I'll never actually work on the thing and see it to fruition. And it just is a completely um you know kind of fucked priority in comparison to what I've. I think most of us who work in higher education, further education, school, anything, we're coming at it from the perspective of you're trying to mm. change somebody's life for the better.
0: Okay, so I think we've covered the main points. So what we're going to be carrying through into the next section, where we attempt to answer our silly question, which I will remind you of, because you might have forgotten by this point, <laughs> are that the approach centres its practice on community and collaboration, must remain open to diverse international voices, will not and cannot be defined by a single voice, but must gather a cacophony of voices. And it must have use and application outside of traditional institutions of education. And we must not also forget the digital aspect that tech exists. Therefore, we have to exist with it. That it's changing things, and we don't know how. And tech for education doesn't always come from education, despite the fact that it should <laughs> or could. Well, could more often. Robert. Could more often in a brighter in a brighter world where universities were able to. I don't know. Somebody had a great idea. Do it. Part two. The answer. Okay, so part two. Uh, the Our question, so let's return to our question because it's been a little while since you heard it. Yeah. Our question was, how does critical digital pedagogy help Starfleet boldly go where no one has gone before? <laughs> so I think the best way of doing this is to go against our, our little points we've just been through okay. and see how I apply. Okay. So... Does Starfleet centre its practice on community and collaboration?
1: I'd say yes and no, because although it is a military outfit, so or quasi military outfit, so although they do lots of round the tabling in the briefing room and all the rest of it, a lot of the time they, you know, kind of it is kind of captain's mm-hmm. orders. Well, it's, it's
0: very hierarchical, isn't it? It is
1: hierarchy. It its its hierarchical. Yeah. Sure. Although, you know, for the sake of good T V, there's lots of arguing and yeah, making they're... sure the captain stomping around the ready room and getting the captain to Although, I mean, to be honest, this is one of the things that comes up for Seven of Nine a lot, doesn't it, in the late, latter seasons of Voyager, when she <sighs> said... When she, I'm going to pretend you didn't do that. Once she's separated from the Borg, she's there, she's now having to relearn her individuality. And at one point, she does she does sort of say, I want to go back. And Jane was like, no, 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 you'll get your individuality eventually. This is all about kind of openness and, 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 and collaboration and community. And she's like, no, no, you're telling me what to do, uh, and I don't want you to tell me what mm. to do. So... So, yeah, so yes, so yes, and no.
0: Would we say? I mean, in fact, because we mustn't forget the critical element of this. Yes. Would we say that they are sufficiently critical in their approach to this? I mean, that particular episode does definitely cover it.
1: I would. Yeah. You're prob- actually. You're probably right on that because, of course, because that's. The, I think. It's one of the latter, latter episodes of the season where Seven of Nine is introduced and mm. there is that whole arc where they are constantly kind of battling mm. with kind of individuality and actually individuals who then also have to follow orders and things like that. And Jane Ray does... She moves her point of view, doesn't she? So I mm. think there is an element of, criti- of criticality there.
0: Absolutely. And it's worth saying as well that if we were to refer to sort of the original series of Star Trek, you've got the, um, the officers, you have Spock, you have uh, Dr. McCoy, and they are—they offer critical opinion, which is often part of a wider discussion. So I would true? say they do. Damn it, Jim! I'm a doctor, not,
1: not a, a whatever. Not a
0: man who's not a doctor. <laughs> Butcher, <laughs> <laughs> sausage maker. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so but they—they they do accept critical critical dissent.
1: Yeah. yeah. Within
0: within that conversation, so I think that yeah, no,
1: definitely. No, that, th- no, you're quite you're quite you're quite right. That is, I mean, that is like I said. I mean, there's often lots of arguments and things like that, but. There is also the, she's the captain.
0: Yeah, yes. Yeah. so they don't do it, I mean, maybe that's so that things can actually progress, because we did talk to her, did say earlier how you can potentially critical yourself to the point where you can't tie your own shoes. Yes,
1: this is a good point.
0: Maybe that does help move things forward, but perhaps that's not a fully, I mean, we'll cover it later in some of the other points, but yeah. maybe that's not a fully uh, collaborative, cacophonous <laughs> approach.
1: Yeah, but, I mean, ultimately, you need you need somebody, uh, probably. It doesn't have to be the loudest voice, but you do need somebody to make a decision.
0: Yeah, because there's a Klingon warbird cloaked up the starboard <laughs> bow, and somebody's got to fire a photon torpedo sooner or later. Exactly. It must remain open. To diverse international voices and thus require invention to reimagine the ways that communication and collaboration happen across cultural and political boundaries. Now, this is a Voyager example, and then some.
1: I th- I would say so. And Also, generally, I think the United Federation of Planets, at least in the uh, pre-Dominion years, I guess, because uh, I do feel like the Dominion War kind of burned a lot of their a lot of their fresh-eyed out of it, but. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. I think that's the, I mean, that is just a complete multicultural hodgepodge of mm. just cruising along, seeing hundreds of different types of species and, um, you know, kind of collaborating or sharing, sometimes falling out with people. But, but this is the part where also, I think, having, the, having some framework to work within. So, for instance, with the Prime Directive, um, which is in guiding community collaboration, Mm. openness and all the rest of it. I think don't be so open minded that your brain falls out. Is I think one of the yeah. one of the lines.
0: I think a good uh, a good example actually for me as well is Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Because um, the station itself is this kind of mess of political alliances, and there's people. I mean, you've got you know Garrick, the uh, Mister oh, Mr. X. Love North Garrick. Garrick character. is one of
1: my favourite favourite characters.
0: So awesome. Mm. Um, but you do have uh, you've got the old. I've uh, got the you've got, uh, who was the old, um, I want to say the s- Supreme Kai, but that's Dragon Ball Z, um, the old Roman centurion-style naughty man, who's very cross and angry-faced, Romulan, he used to run the station.
1: Oh, um, Cardassian, I think. The
0: Cardassian, oh, bloody hell, the oh. Cardassian. <laughs> I'm confused, oh my goodness. to Cat. Gold yes, <laughs> Gold cut. You've got Gold this old wily politician, and a lot of the show is about these very disparate parties. Yes, yeah.
1: um, That I think is the most political yeah. of the Star Trek. Yeah,
0: and they and they, and they are having to have a kind of a pan cultural, pan political yeah. dialogue in order to actually kind of move things forward. It's constantly finding a way between them.
1: Yes, um, yeah. Which I
0: think is uh, is kind of neat.
1: In terms of negotiating between different cultures, that's probably a really, that's a great example.
0: Mm. And, and Cisco, God bless him, That's his whole approach is that he involves everybody. everybody. Yeah, he he he's all about
1: consultation, isn't he?
0: Yeah. He pulls absolutely everybody into that um argument all the way. And including the, you know, uh, The Cardassians. I was thinking of the Cardassians. And also I can't I'm trying to remember Quark.
1: Quark said, and his Quark yeah, and his
0: brother who Ferengi's. The Ferengi. Yeah.
1: The little crooks. But- I know they are little crooks. But do you know what? do you know what I admire about the Ferengi? Is that they're little crooks, but they have rules mm. they have rules that guide I mean, my favourite my favourite rule of acquisition is the one that says family are the rungs on the ladder to success do not hesitate to step on them <laughs> <laughs> and then my other two favourite rules of acquisition one is war is good for business and the other is peace is good for business <laughs> <laughs>
0: My auntie has a signed um, photo of Quark um, up in her her, uh, living room next to the family.
1: I'm in Scheinman on my wall. I would be quite happy for that.
0: He's he's the, one of the best. That's such a good. The oh, DS line's great. It's got some excellent characters.
1: Yeah, no, um, it does. It definitely does. I think the Dominion War is just. And I mean, there's threat and there's threat. And I'm mean, Voyager. In Voyager, the threat is all Borg. Um, you know, especially towards the later stages. But in, when the Dominion get involved as well, because that is such a, an attack on who uh, Starfleet is and who the the United Federation of Planets is um, as people. I think that's really interesting because I really kind of. It, Kicks them, kicks them right in their core, um, their core identity. Well,
0: it's a big challenge to the values, isn't it?
1: Yeah, well, it is, isn't it? And yeah, so let's,
0: let's go to chemical warfare to get rid of this one. Okay, well, this is it, you bit, know, real genocide.
1: It's, it's like, and then they stop and they go, "How the hell did we get here? We highfaluting kind of UFP and, and 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 Starfleet. We never thought we would be capable of this. It's, oh, actually, Starfleet is capable of all
0: kinds of things." Mm. The Defiant is probably one of my favourite uh, Starfleet ships. Yes. I mean, that and Voyager, obviously, because Voyager's got that lovely kind of sleek look. It's, uh, yeah. it's definitely the Porsche of yeah. um, Explorer well, classes. Yes, yeah. Um, uh, so, will not, cannot be defined by a single voice, but must gather together a cacophony of voices. So I think we've touched on this a little bit already. So. Um, but, yeah, it's about, I think, all of the successful Starfleet kind of moments are around everybody having a great big argument.
1: Yes uh, they, yeah.
0: they, you know the uh, yeah, individual captains will pull, in to pull together their officers but also whatever alien they've picked up that episode uh, who has uh, who has a decisive opinion on uh, on what the local issue is yeah um, I think whenever you see the meetings in Starfleet apart from when it's uh, an evil Starfleet meeting because there's some episodes where Starfleet are being evil. And there's some they're being benevolent. Yes. Benevolent Starfleet meetings uh, tend to be lots of people around a table coming to well-informed yes, um, yeah. solutions together. Evil ones is where Rogue Admiral Nasty uh, has a plan for his own bizarre enrichment, despite the fact that it's post-scary. And it's usually very scarcity. dimly
1: lit, and it's on a tiny little screen, which now surprisingly looks like an iPad, <laughs> and uh, and, uh, and it's had being had very had in in very secretive, in yes. secretive whispers yes Yeah,
0: but they'll come a cropper later in, in a hilarious fashion
1: always <laughs> um, unless
0: it's a multi-part episode in which case they'll come a cropper violently i think that's the pattern <laughs> okay and finally uh, must have and use ap- must <laughs> must have use applications outside of uh, traditional institutions of education i think this might be slightly where the approach fails with starfleet
1: well i mean you've got starfleet academy True. You do have Starfleet Academy. So, so here's because this is, and then of course you've got the I Ching of Starfleet Academy tests, which is a Kobayashi Maru, which is um, the completely unwinnable situation. And then Kirk is the and only person who's it. ever won it because he cheated. He he tweaked the parameters of it. He made the institution see it from his perspective.
0: So I'm trying to think. I think the specific context of Starfleet. Yeah. So it says must have used an application outside traditional institutions of education. So let's. Very quickly look at how Starfleet is an institution for education. Yes. Which I think to some degree it is. I mean, I think the protocols around contact and bringing uh, people into uh, the Federation of Planets is inherently uh, educational. Yeah. It's about... Hi, here we are. Here's our approach. Would you like to join us? And more importantly, here's who your neighbours are.
1: But there also it's an education in that they are constantly learning as well. That's the whole Mm. idea of discovery, of being a fleet of discovery is constantly going out and learning about learning about different people, learning about different approaches, learning about different um, planets, um, systems um, and all the rest. it's the thing that Jane has thrown at her all the time, which is that they stop and inspect every speck of dust yes. on, the, on the trip home, and she's kind of like, "Well, I'm not going to make it. I'm not going to leave, make it a wasted journey. I'm going to learn as much yeah. as I can between now and between now and seventy years." They're an institution of learning, as in in the sense of that they are learning as much as they are doing dissemination and
0: teaching. But as you say, they're also a community. They're also a military. So yeah, I think yeah, I think they actually which case they apply quite well. I suppose it's quite easy to forget the whole discovery, exploration, scientific thing, which to a greater degree probably underpins a lot of the federation, but is the less exciting element that we see on Taylor a little bit less.
1: See, but now this is the part where it starts to become really interesting because as well, because you can you can sort of think about so how is what they do and learn as an outfit, how is that applicable to other institutions and then if you all are thinking that they're an institution does that mean that the Klingon, the Klingon um, uh, military are, are they an institution you know Cardassians um, the are they an institution and uh, the,
0: the Borg are they an institution well we'll definitely talk about the Borg in a bit yeah. but I think the Klingons are actually a great example there because they are often thwarted by the fact that they don't learn from whatever the uh, the thing that happens in the episode there's always the Klingons are always have the upper hand when it comes to particularly in the, you know, the original series yes. the Klingons will have the upper hand in the engagement. Something they will have learned during that episode, something like uh, they'll have learned something from another character or something, or they've will tried something new and crazy which won't have worked early, but will now, Um, will usually be the thing that gives them the edge in their um, thing, which I know is to some degree kind of like, you know, classic three-act structure, just approach to story writing. Yes, yeah. But um, yeah, I I think you're actually right. I think that shows the difference because the Klingons are always there to... We will stealth off you, and then we will shoot at you. Yes, and we will have yeah. won great glory. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but probably better than having a slightly an intellectually insular approach, like hmm. the
0: Romulans. Hmm. How so? How are they intellectually well?
1: In insular, in the sense, in, in the sense that because they have a uh, see, I think the Romulans are fascinating because um, they're so completely secretive. So you kind of have no idea what's going on there. But I don't think you would see them at a, at an education conference. You know sort of doing, it at the very least not contributing, not mm. contributing to they don't contribute to the store of knowledge that's kind of, I guess, what I'm thinking about yeah. so the Klingons are there actively taking part in things, at the very least, for good or for bad they are mm. there taking part in things but the Romulans, for instance, are much more kind of secretive and hiding around the edges mm-hmm. and they're there, but but they're not necessarily they're not there necessarily taking part in things in a kind of an open intellectual debate
0: once again a small bit of uh, overlapping community to practice theory there where we yes. have um, so legit, legitimate peripheral participation from the Klingons um, and we have uh, the federation acting as broker agents and then uh, people outside the sphere of, uh, of the community in the, in the Romulans because they are not uh, not participating in it and therefore cannot enjoy the, the benefits of it. But anyway, that's communities of practice, which we've, we've talked about before, although it is the Swiss Army model <laughs> you can apply to absolutely everything. Okay, so uh, finding, okay, so the digital aspect. Let's yes, try yeah. and fit this in. Okay, so technology exists, therefore we have to exist with it. Now, how does Starfleet address this in their boldly going?
1: I guess the thing I like about... Star Trek, is that they are will totally they totally acknowledge that their technology is superior to other people's other people's technology. Sometimes,
0: Hmm.
1: Um, you know, that not everybody has equal access. Ah, Yeah,
0: there's no parity. There's
1: no parity. It's basically thinking about the Prime Directive. So you've got um, there is no parity in technology around two civilizations. Because I have better technology than you, I would might find it very easy to inflict my values and inflict my morals and inflict my politics onto you. Mm. Therefore, I'm going to step out, of the, step out of the conversation. Where it all breaks down, of course, is where you have that idea of actually, would it be better to provide this technology to mm. others? So I'm thinking again about that first episode. Neelix basically cons Voyager uh, into going down onto the surface to, um, uh, to talk to Kazon. So trying to get access to the caretaker, but of course, um, Neelix knows that the accompanies live below the surface and that they're going to have to basically give the Kazon something. And the Kazon, the very first words, so they arrive there with two massive containers of water. It's a, it's a it's a planet that's been completely annihilated. There's no you know there's no water. There's no nothing. It's been destroyed. Cl- climate change has destroyed it. And they arrive with two big massive containers of water. And of course, the first thing the Kazon says is. Uh, the 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 goals, um not the goal, um the, the Kazon say, says the Kazon Liso says is uh, screw your water. I want access to the technology Can that gives me the water. The water. Yes. And it's like oh, of course that's what they want. And it is a little bit like, okay, Jane Ray, you're going to protect the a uh, cumper, but you're probably these are also people who are on the surface are dying of dying of thirst. Hmm. It is it is a part where the prime directive really breaks down breaks down for me because it is like and she talks about a lot about balance of power. She's sort of saying you know, if they give the on the technology, it will destroy the balance of power because it's one sect and they won't want to share with the other sects and all the rest of it. Well, this is,
0: once again, this is back to the critical element of it. So it's it's having, it's understanding that you have access to this technology, but it's understanding everything that goes along with it. And it's thinking critically about if I do this, if I utilize this in this way. yeah. Why am I doing this? How does yeah. this affect me? How does this affect this group of people, this group of people who will come into contact yeah. with it? How will it, this affect the group of people who come, in, come into contact with the people who it has come into a contact with? Absolutely. And that's the, the crucial critical element. It's, um, existing along with the technology is about um, understanding your place alongside it, understanding how yeah. the technology fits into the wider picture.
1: And of course, sometimes it does happen to swiftly that they, they either develop they develop something that gets completely out of control or they encounter something that they're not able to—they're not able to wield in a in a, in a rational in a rational way, and they then have to take a step back and go, Actually, we, "We are not able to cope with this. We're not able to cope with this thing. We yeah. should maybe lock it away for the next twenty years and then or, see." For the next
0: series, every series is hit warp ten at some stage. Well, um, absolutely. And then they always put the uh, put the jar back on because it always goes hilariously wrong.
1: It is funny though because you know, the Borg are like, "No chance warp uh, for uh, for you," so they just steal it.
0: Mm. <laughs> <laughs> So I think that also ties into it. changing it's changing things, but we don't know how. I no. think um, as we've talked uh, we've talked at length now but about how you know that Voyager and the impact that that has when it arrives um, in the Delta Quadrant.
1: Immediately, and, the minute the minute it gets there, it immediately has a it immediately has a ripple effect.
0: Yeah, and I think Janeway and the crew are very good about essentially understanding that they don't understand the full impact of what of them being there does they yes. take it as it comes and they attempt i'd say to yeah they to deal with on a case by case basis
1: crucially i also think that they are sitting there going well it wasn't our fault we're here because we got dragged here against our will but that doesn't mean that we don't have a responsibility mm. that i think that is also part of part of critical crit, critical pedagogy is understanding that you have a responsibility kind of if you think about the language of privilege and the intersectional politics that we're in now it is part of it as well. So you have a responsibility to uh, own up to that privilege, and own up to your biases, and own up to your um, to your um, beliefs, and kind of, when challenged, back off, adapt, and change.
0: I can't help but think of that meme now. What does "improvise," "adapt," "overcome"? Have you seen that meme? No, I haven't. Oh, I'll send it to you. It's great. <laughs> okay. Finally, tech for education doesn't always come for education. So. Well, I mean, actually, yeah, tech for Starfleet doesn't always come from Starfleet.
1: No, they do sometimes just wholly wholly steal it,
0: definitely. Yeah, steal is a strong word, apart from the cloaking technology they stick on the Defiant, which they do... They stole from the Romulans. Which they completely stole from the Romulans.
1: And also the Transwarp Cubes, which are the Transwarp uh, capability, which they stole from the Borg. Okay. Although, to be fair, the
0: Borg stole everything first. A good... I'd say there's a a scientific innovation per Star Trek thing from Next Generation onwards per series yeah. in some way, shape, or form. I mean, Voyager's a great example because they kind of hodgepodge and adapt the ship and the ship kind of basically is... To be honest, Voyager itself is one of the best characters in the entire series. Yes, yeah, yeah. I'd say it's, the, I'd say it's probably my fa- my favourite series for it in that it's the one where the ship itself has a lot of character. The fact that there's all these other races firing stuff in, I mean, there's a lot of talk of, oh, the Vulcans have developed this and this yes, has come yeah. from... Yeah, no. there's a
1: lot of collaboration around. So if you're within the United Federation of Palinots, I think there is a lot of collaboration and sharing that, that that goes on. To be honest, I would think that they probably look very sniffly on people who are inventing things just quietly off on, off on their yeah, own. I think they're they they're not so keen on that. But I also think that there is a collaboration going on with them. Um, Use of technology that doesn't evolve, that hasn't come directly from Starfleet. You have loads of um, uh, non non loads of non Starfleet um, um, people involved in things. Like thinking, for instance, of the of the Doctor, you know, mm. and um, the technology is not from Starfleet, but it is used by Starfleet. Commander um, Data. Yes, absolutely. That's true. Actually, I'd I'd
0: forgotten about that. I think we've covered it. Basically how Starfleet meet those criteria, yeah. I think we can definitely say that they take a critical approach, uh, which fits certainly against the um, the aspects that Jesse's outlined. I think, however, to really illustrate, because you could just say, oh, you could apply that to anything, to illustrate how not to do it, you need look no further than the Borg. Um, so we'll very quickly run through those. So the Borg, do they centre their practice on community and collaboration? no they do not
1: no they don't although they are a because that's thing is because they are a collective. they are mini, they're a collective they're a collective but i don't think they do so much with the collaboration and the sharing and the consultation or anything like that they're a collective but they are a single
0: single consciousness and
1: there is no there is no arguing or there is no kind of individual opinion or anything like that there's no cacophony well there's a cacophony of voices but they are all single.
0: <laughs> There's a cacophony of one voice.
1: One voice, absolutely.
0: And they are, I mean, they are open to diverse international voices insofar as they like to hear them so they can work out new people to assimilate. Yeah. So, and they do like to add it to their wider store of knowledge.
1: See, I, so, this is the thing I think is really funny, though, is, is the way it's expressed is you will, we will add your biological and technological distinctiveness to our own. Um, and the fact that they are actually acknowledging, oh, you're special. I'm going to take that, and I'm going to take your specialness and put it in me, and so that we can we're evolving towards perfection. And that's the thing I think with with the way the, the, the Borg and the way they they uh, deal with their technology and you know sort of cruise around the cruise around the universe, you know, kind of they have all the gear and no idea. Yeah, yeah.
0: which is a great phrase. <laughs> <laughs> They will not, cannot be defined by a single voice, but must gather together a cacophony of voices. Nope, complete opposite. They now, I see, are I, and am a single voice.
1: They, yeah, well, they are. But they also, if you think about the way that they are evolving towards perfection, the central part of evolving towards... I mean, we may disagree about what, what they're actually evolving towards, but they can't get on without assimilating. Hmm. That's their only way of acquiring knowledge and information and also technology is they assimilate at all. Um, so they are They, I mean, they are open somewhat, although then you get the occasional species that they skip over, so like the Kazon again from Voyager. They're like, yeah, no, we were totally not interested in them because they were just <laughs> so completely unremarkable. <laughs> Can you imagine being the species that the Borg skip over? I know,
0: and it's like, oh, we don't even need your biomatter. That's, that's a hell of an indictment. It really is. Um, must have used an application outside of traditional... Well, that's the thing. So they are very much a uh, a form follows function i think they it's a very reductivist um approach absolutely to how they build how they build everything uh, for example all of the episodes where uh, they end up on a board cube which i'm pretty sure must be the same set every time uh, every every series absolutely, for yeah. it. Uh, the same sound stage um they everything on there is essentially uh Built exclusively around um, sustaining the little worker drones, sustaining the ship, sustaining the, the Borg consciousness for the next set of uh, life hoovering.
1: This is why I say all the gear and no ideas. They have everything in terms of technology that you can imagine that you possibly want. But if you don't apply it right, people end up terrified of yeah. you. And, and, and uh, they, well, and they and are subsequently thwarted
0: by people uh, many, many, many times who are uh, technologically inferior to them.
1: But uh, know enough about, but are able to wield technology they do have.
0: In different ways.
1: Yeah, but also because they've not forgotten their humanity. They've not forgotten their personhood. You know, Because the thing is, ultimately, the thing with te- technology is that people come first. And that's what the Borg the borg are doing is so they're putting the technology before the people um whereas i do like to think as starfleet puts the people before the technology mm. are linking it to education you know kind of um and digital digital pedagogy the incredible importance of all of those things because that is the world that we now live in mm. and we are teaching people who will need to work and live in a world of technology so we can't put the genie back in the bottle on that one but the people come first
0: yes which I guess ties us into technology exists, therefore they have to exist along with it. I think, I mean, I'd, I'd say they do that just because they are the technology. Uh, I guess the they Borg I, are. Technology, te- yes, technology they, exists. And, no, it's, technology exists and you will exist along with us.
1: Yeah, no, well, resistance is futile.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, ah, this is an interesting one. So it's changing. Th- so once again, looking at the digital aspects, it's changing, but we don't know how. The, te- the Borg don't deal in doubt. That's an interesting one. They don't deal in, um, in uncertainty.
1: But then there's no, kind of, there's no consultation, so it's quite easy to kind of make a single decision if you are, you know. But also, you, if you are powerful enough, you're, they're the shoutiest cube in the room, you mm. know. Of course people are going to go, yes, yes, whatever you say, because they are incredibly powerful and they wield their
0: power for evil, not for good. And back to the critical element, one thing the Borg definitely aren't is self-critical, because, you know, they keep on getting thwarted by people with technology. <laughs> In Superior and much further down the evolutionary scale. And one big aspect of uh, Seven of Nine's evolution as a character within Voyager is the fact that she starts asking questions. Like, that's a really big deal, as she starts essentially as this worker drone and then starts asking questions. And that's kind of how she develops as a person, as a character, and starts to learn. It's the critical aspect in particular, which is what allows her to learn and develop as a character and and as a person in those series.
1: And a crucial part of her discovering her humanity is accepting her flaws, Mm. because she has gone from being perfect to being not perfect, or she has gone from perceiving herself as perfect to no
0: longer being perfect. Mm. Which is also lovely. (laughs) (laughs) Came out just the right age for me. Um, Okay, so I think we might have answered our question. Okay. So let's do a quick recap. How does critical digital pedagogy help staff boldly go where no one has gone before? They remain open in diverse. They remain open to diverse international voices and require invention to reimagine the ways that communication and collaboration happen across political and cultural boundaries. Absolutely, yep. they centre their practice on community and collaboration. Yep. Absolutely, uh, they will not and cannot be defied by a single voice, but must gather together a cacophony of voices. Yep, they do for the most part, except for the occasional executive decision to yep. fire a torpedo. <laughs> Uh they must have use adaptation outside of traditional institutions of education, yeah, I think definitely they kind of you know they 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 do it all they understand where they exist alongside their technology, both how it changes things but also the ambiguity that it introduces, and that the technology around them doesn't always come directly from within yeah. uh they accept the technology comes from without as well, yeah, I think the prime we've got the prime directive here as well, actually, which I think. We, kind of, we had a little talk before the episode started about how the Prime Directive kind of applies to, uh, to critical pedagogy. Yes. I think it applies to some of the points we've done. So I'm just going to quickly, um, unless you've got it written down in front of you.
1: Yes, I've got it. Yeah, no,
0: cool. Okay, so the Prime Directive, uh, also known as Staff Leader General Order 1, <laughs> states... Oh, crap, I've not got it.
1: That's okay. It prevents crews from using superior technology to impose their values or ideals on them. So when they encounter different civilizations, new civilizations. It prevents the, it prevents Starfleet from strong arming um, civilizations by going, "We have more technology, therefore we are better."
0: And there you have it. Starfleet. The Starfleet prime directive is the digital aspect of critical <laughs> digital pedagogy. Yeah, it's it's literally a personification I of.: that.
1: Think so. yeah, absolutely. Yeah, because I, I think, sorry, I'd say, I think it's, because I think the thing with the prime directive is, is, it is it is both the critical aspect as well as the digital aspect. It's the critical aspect in the sense of going, our values are not all shared we also have, and that we, when we are in a position of power, we can't impose that on others, and an acknowledgement that actually technology is a very big part, it's a digital aspect, technology is a really big part of that um, that power dynamic. So yeah, I, I mean, uh, the Prime Directive is a pretty good summary of yeah. that.
0: <laughs> if anything, we'd started the episode with that, um, we would have saved ourselves quite a bit of time. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't know what the edit's going to look like, but we're an hour and 23 into the recording. <laughs>
1: You know me; I can always guess about something.
0: <laughs> okay, so practical tips for educators based on what we've gone through today. So, I mean, I'd say uh, as an educator, higher ed, something to be aware of is be critical of your approach for starters. Um, be critical of where you're coming from with assumptions, where you're coming from. You know, just not just from a, a macro level of you know what. Uh, topics that you're selecting to study, uh what areas you believe are the things that need to be known within that, but also at a micro level, you know, why are you asking particular, why are you asking students to, for example, do essays? Is that uh, you know, is that is that is that your thinking, is that you casting your uh, assumptions and things on something that mentally suitable, you know, ask questions. But also within that ask your students to take a critical approach. Teach your students how to be critical, uh to separate stuff, the evidence of their eyes that you're putting in front of them from the perceptions of reality and what actually might be real, being able to pull apart, what's objective, what's subjective. Um, I think within the digital aspect, it's understand what you're doing with technology in all aspects of things. So it's understanding that you may not understand technology, asking yourself where it's come from, understanding the impact it has on students and the impact that, that may have further down the line to, uh, not just them, but wider society, uh, particularly when operating at scale like we do. And understand that you might not understand what you're understanding. No, that's a bit vague. Um, that was very vague. I'll cut that no. bit. <laughs> uh, uh, un- understand that um, you can't predict quite how it's. No, fuck that's repetition. Fuck okay, it. Snip. Okay,
1: cool. No, I think I think you were on to on the right thing there.
0: Yeah, basically uh, quest- question yourself, but not to the point where you can't tie your own shoelaces. Absolutely, absolutely.
1: What well, I always come away from uh, thinking about when I think about this kind of this kind of approach to pedagogy is is about um, that it's people people come first um, and understanding people as individuals is,
0: is really important that's it that's the one that's the takeaway people come first don't be the Borg don't be <laughs> all the gear and no idea be Starfleet <laughs> we're all about people
1: or be Vulcan and live long and prosper
0: yes so, thanks very much for listening. Uh, you can subscribe to us on iTunes and at all of your favourite podcatching apps, hopefully, as long as we've been picked up by the uh, the old syndication crawlers. If you object to anything we've said or have any questions or have a particular bit of theory or pop culture you'd like us to talk about, you can get in contact with us at Pedagodzilla on Twitter. Uh, you can also get in contact via email uh, using an email address to sign up to Twitter and getting in contact via Pedagodzilla because we don't have an email address for the show. <laughs> We hope you enjoyed listening. Uh, We've loved talking to you and we'll see you again next time. Bye-bye.
1: Bye.